then that's fine. Um, but let's pray before we start. Lord, thank you so much that you are here with us. Thank you for your hand on our lives. And I pray, Jesus, that you would help us that you would help us to receive your word and receive what this lesson is about and this new series that we're doing, God. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would open our hearts and minds for your word, that you would fill my mouth with your word, Lord Jesus, and that you would help me, God, to speak what it is that you want me to speak. I pray, Lord Jesus, Lord, allow us during this time to get the most out of your word, to get the most out of our time together. I pray, Lord Jesus, be with us here as we are preparing our hearts to worship you, that through your word, Lord Jesus, that would begin to happen. We give you all glory and all honor. We thank you for your presence in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to grab my book in my purse over here. That in itself could be an adventure, but I do want to use it. And if you remember, um, I think we maybe have maybe two or three of these left, but this is the next um, 12 weeks of lessons, and there are devotionals, if you would like them, that go along with the lessons, and these books are $5, um, and we can order more if we need to. So this particular series of lessons is about the God of deliverance, and I told some of you last week, who are very kind and have enjoyed our last couple of lessons. I hope I don't disappoint you because I just really, really loved the topic that we were on the last couple weeks. And now we're just going to be talking about the board. No, I'm teasing. It's not going to be boring at all. Um, we're talking about Moses. And I am really excited because, I mean, what better topic to talk about than somebody who is called the friend of God? I want to be called the friend of God. So I want to know about his life and know you know, more about him. So we're going to be talking about deliverance and how slaves can be deliverance and that God delivered and that God is the God of deliverance. So our focus scripture today is Hebrews 3.14, and it says, For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. We're made partakers of Christ. We're steadfast to the end. So we're going to be looking at particularly Exodus chapter 2 today and kind of the beginning of the story of the Israelites being delivered from Egypt. And we're going to, some of the things that we've talked about the last few weeks, they're going to make a little more sense today, which is great. I love how the Lord works in that way and allows us to build on lessons, you know, even though maybe we didn't realize that was going to happen. So the truth about God that we're going to look at in this lesson is that God overcomes efforts that seek to keep us enslaved. You know, there is, the, the Bible tells us that our enemy, like a roaring lion, is looking for someone that he can devour. He's looking to devour us, looking to enslave us. And so the Lord overcomes those efforts to keep us enslaved, to enslave us, to snare us. And I love that little phrase that's in our lesson that he overcomes them because we would normally say, you know, the Lord's going to help you overcome that. But the phrase here is the Lord overcomes the efforts. You know, we step into that power of God and he's the one that overcomes. And that's when it really becomes about the fact that in me, I don't even really have the ability to do it. I don't have the ability to be an overcomer, but he overcomes 
and I step into his ability and I step into his power. So the truth for my life is that I will act on God's provision of deliverance. I will step into that provision of deliverance. And if you have a chance, if you were not here on Wednesday and you have a chance to go back and listen to Brother Parker and the missionary's message, it was about the power of our will, your will. And it really goes very well with the lesson that we're going to talk about today. So if you get the chance, go back and listen to that because it was a great message about what we, our will, what we are able to do, and that there is a power in that. Um, and, and we have to make the choice to exercise that in the right way. See, we are, we are free will beings. And that's what separates us from every other creation in this world is that we have free will. And so we have to use our will to walk in to step into the right things. So we're going to begin our lesson today with a story. And this story be begins and then goes back. It begins on March 22nd, 2018, when an ordinary family said goodbye to an extraordinary man. Now, he wasn't just extraordinary because he had reached the age of 107. 107. That's a long time. He wasn't even extraordinary simply because he had served in the government for over 25 years or because he had won a chess tournament at age 99. He did some cool things, but what Johann von Holst was remarkable for was that he saved over 600 Jewish, Jewish children from the Nazi genocide. In 1940, von Holst had been appointed deputy principal of the Reformed Teacher Training College, a seminary in Amsterdam, and this was just as World War II swept across Europe. Van Holst's first contributions included helping convert the college into a shelter for Dutch teachers that were in danger because they refused to sign the oath of loyalty to Germany. So by 1942, Van Holst began an even more radical means of rescuing Jews in the Netherlands. Nazis were using a theater across the street from the college as a deportation center for Jewish families. As a part of the process, children were separated from their parents and sent to a nursery next door. And the nursery shared a back garden with the college that Ben Holst was in charge of. And so he used the opportunity to step in and save the children. By secretly coordinating operations with the nursery workers... Van Holst and his colleagues helped to smuggle children out of the city. These courageous individuals canvassed potential adoptive families who could take the endangered children into their homes without detection. And then partnering nursery workers covertly removed the names of the children from the Nazi registry. So this was a very, there was a lot of stuff going on here that was happening and a lot of people that were um, cooperating with this. And so they were removing the children and then it was as though the children never exist because somebody else would re remove the name of the child from the list. And so... Then Holst and this network of secret deliverers then arranged for the children to be hidden in containers like laundry baskets and sacks. Can you imagine trying to hide a child in a laundry basket? Deliverers would time their mission for when a tram would pass, and it would block the view of the Nazi guards so another resistant worker could, could ride away with the hidden child. And then the rescued toddlers would live out the rest of, their, of the war in hiding. So this covert deliverance lasted, this effort, until 1943 when the nursery was closed and its Jewish director was sent to the death camp in Auschwitz. 
Van Hulse continued to help other Jews in danger until he was forced to go into hiding just three weeks before the liberation. And on March 8th of 1972, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center recognized Johann von Holst as righteous among the nations, which meant he was described in honor as someone who risked their lives to save the Jews from genocide. So in an age when most this is now. In an age when most North Americans enjoyed relatively safety, it is difficult even now to understand the depths of his sacrifice. I mean, even just thinking about that and how it, how it all worked out. And, and I mean, every conversation that he had was a risk. Would you be willing to erase this child's name? Would you be willing to put this child in your laundry basket and wait until the train passes too? I mean, every conversation, this was a danger. And so he took this, this danger and, and sacrifice of himself. And we can acknowledge with appreciation the high cost of deliverance and the glorious freedom that his efforts purchased for at least 600 children. Even though maybe we are not living in a time where we have to deal with that kind of thing or we have to make those kind of choices, we can appreciate this kind of a story and see the deliverance that was brought by this man, that he deserved the honor that he was giving. So in reflecting on that, we're going to be looking at another time in the children of Israel's history that was very difficult when they were slaves in Egypt. Um, and you're talking about 400 years of their time being slaves coming to an end. They were in a position that they never saw coming. So if you know the story, you know, Joseph, you know the story of Joseph. He was taken into Egypt as a slave himself, and the Lord lifted him up, and he became second in command to their king, Pharaoh. And as second in command, he was able to bring his family during a time of famine and feed them. So all of his family comes to Egypt, away from really where God had called them to, right? But where they were, there was famine. And so Joseph brings them to Egypt, and they are given a supply of food and a place, a very good place to live. They're given a very good piece of land, good place to live. And there was about 75 of them at this time. Now here they are living a very favored life, these 75 descendants of Abraham in Egypt, and you turn the page from Genesis to Exodus, and you're 400 years later, there's millions of them, and they're slaves in Egypt. So this was progressive. This is how this happened. How did, how did this happen? How did they get into this place? Slowly over time, there were evil forces that exerted more and more power in the lives of these Israelites. Through time and through circumstance, the enemy, the, the Pharaoh, where they were living, slowly took away their rights. And by the time the Israelites realized what had happened to them, they were in bondage. They were, you read through the first couple chapters of Exodus, they were without hope. They, it says specifically that, you know, they, they were crying out to the Lord. There was no answer. Here they were, slaves. It was just a terrible place of bondage that they were in. 
And these events are a perfect example of how Satan draws many people into spiritual slavery and how backsliders can backslide. How does it happen? The devil tries to chip away at our conscience and eliminate small disciplines in our lives. And we begin to think that maybe this aspect of godly living is not important. It's just a small sin, and surely it won't hurt me that bad. It's not as bad as other people or other sins. And then eventually, through gradual regression, we are put back into the same slavery that God had delivered us from. Now, it might not take 400 years like it did for the Israelites, but it is this progression that we barely even recognize. The Israelites were in the middle of something that had been done to them. And, and as I was reading this lesson, this was really going through my mind. There is not a lot that they did to get themselves in the position of slavery that they were in. Especially when you open the pages of Exodus, you're talking about a people that are born into slavery. They're already slaves. So what were the steps that got them there? What were the things that happened? And to, to get them to this position of slavery, you know, the, the most obvious thing, and we talk about it sometimes when we talk about um, Joseph and his family and, and how they stayed in Egypt and they shouldn't have. They shouldn't have stayed in Egypt. When the famine was over, probably, well, they should have gone back to where God had called them to. And so now we're looking 400 years later at a whole group of people that are in slavery and in bondage because of a decision that was made by their ancestors. And I think that is a lot parallel to many people that are in bondage today. They are in bondage maybe because of something that was done to them, something they were born into. They're bound to something. They're bound to memories of the past and things that maybe they didn't have anything to do with. As an innocent child, things happen to them that have encased them in bondage. And this, to me, this biblical story is a great example of that happening right in the Bible and of God offering deliverance in that situation, which is very much hope to me. So what happened to get them there is that the, the Egyptians had, never, had not always oppressed the Hebrews. We talked about that, how Joseph held this position of authority and he was only second to Pharaoh. And the government forgot this history. The Egyptians did not remember God's miraculous provision because of Joseph's ability to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And the Bible specifically tells us there arose a Pharaoh who didn't know who Joseph was. That's in the past. I don't know who that is. I don't know that. And so they didn't remember how they had been provided for and how they had been given plenty. They had been blessed. Egypt had been blessed to make it through the famine because of Israel. And now Israel was in bondage to them. And as Christians, when we look at this story, there are so many things to draw from. And one of those things that we can draw from is that we cannot forget the blessings that God has poured out on us in the past, right? And this is, again, where, and, and you know I love the scripture, we overcome by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. This is one of those places where we can look and we can say, I must testify to myself of the goodness of God in my life. You've heard me say it. That when I take up my shield of faith, I testify to myself of what God has done in my life. I remind myself 
of what God has done for me. I'm not just reminding me either. And if you've seen my, that, the picture that I love to put up of the, there was, I, it was after Hurricane Katrina, it was the one in Houston, the hurricane in Houston that was recent. And the, uh, the store owner had put boards across their store and then they had written the name of every hurricane that had happened that that store had lived through. And that's how I think about my shield of faith. I'm like, you know what? Here is everything I have lived through. Try to get through this. And so we have to continually remember what it is that God has blessed us with and the things that he has already brought us from. And if we will remember those things, it's a lot harder for us to slip into that place of backsliding, that place of bondage, because we remember who our blessings come from. They're not, when we get comfortable enough to say, I can do this on my own, that's when we're in trouble. That's when we can slip into bondage. So we've got to remember that. So how is it that somebody who is filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized in Jesus' name, and has a whole sheet of testimonies they could talk about, how can they backslide? It's because they slowly and gradually forget over time what God has done for them. So what are some spiritual thermometers in our life that can help us um, not do this? Not forget. Be in a place where we are um, remembering what God has brought us from and we are staying strengthened. Okay? Now, this is a question from the lesson. What are some things, some spiritual thermometers? And immediately my mind goes to something in the culture of this church, which is our spiritual vitals. Those spiritual vitals, knowing that we are in the word, that we are praying, that we are faithful, that we have spiritual authority over our lives, that we are givers, keeping those things in line in our lives, we call them vitals because it's like the vitals of your body. If, you're, if you don't have a pulse, you're not alive. If you're not breathing, you're not alive. So if you begin to think about those things as vitals that a nurse would check when they're checking you out at the hospital, then you will remember, I have to have these things or I need to be alarmed that they're not right. And so those spiritual thermometers will help position us so that we can step into that place of God, God overcoming the snares of the enemy. Because we don't want to be in bondage. And if we are in bondage, well, then what do we do? How do we get out of it? So we're, we're going to talk more about that, maybe not so much today, but as we move forward. So we know the story of Moses. And, and I say we, and then I go back and tell it because I never want to be presumptuous. Maybe you don't know the story of Moses, and that's okay. It's a great story in the Bible. So Moses, we meet him as a baby, in the Bible. So what happens is God sees that the children of Israel are in distress, and he, the Bible says that he hears their cry for help. And so Pharaoh, who is the king in Egypt at this time, they would call him Pharaoh, he's trying to kill all of the Hebrew baby boys because he sees, the Bible says, these people are, this is a huge group of people. And they're strong. They're doing all our physical labor. What if they get so big that they rise up against us? How will we deal with this? Well, we will just kill all of their baby boys. We'll just kill all their babies because then they can't grow up. They can't be serving as soldiers. So there's a whole generation killed off here. And while Pharaoh's trying to kill all the Hebrew boys, God protects many of their children. And one of, how do we know that that happens? Because you kind of see throughout that there are others 
in Moses' line and mo- around that same, that there, there is some deliverance there. And so one of these children is Moses, and we see him in his infancy. At his birth, his mother hides him for three months. That, again, another miracle right there. And when she could hide him no longer, she forms a floating basket and sends him down the river. And undoubtedly, the basket left her hands with prayers as she sends her child downstream. I cannot even imagine doing this. I think at this point, it's, it's like, you know what? God, I have two options. I can put my baby in the hand of the enemy or I can put my baby in your hands. That's the only options that I have. And so she chooses to put her baby in the hands of the Lord. And this baby floats downstream and God hears her prayers and demonstrates his saving power. And what a miracle. It's like that boat was directed by the Lord. I'm sure it was. The person to save baby Moses was Pharaoh's daughter. So when she comes down to the river to take a bath, she sees the child and she immediately has compassion on him. And as she swaddles the baby... Moses' sister runs from the bushes and offers to find a Hebrew woman to nurse and raise a child because the Pharaoh's daughter knows this is a Hebrew baby. So it's probably a little bit like a pet. She wants to keep him. That's all I can in my mind. Like, oh, it's a little baby. I want to keep the baby. So Moses' sister finds, goes back to her mother, and the mother is allowed to nurse this baby and to raise this baby up until it's weaned. And Moses is raised under the protection, by his own mother, under the protection of the Egyptian government. It's kind of, it's, we know these stories and they become so, so well ingrained in our mind that we almost forget like the miracle of what just happened here. It is a wondrous thing that has just happened. And, And now Moses is raised with the best education. He's raised in wealth, in plenty. And he's protected for the purpose of God. You know, things, this is not accidental. It's not like God was like, oh, look. Look what happened with this one. He will make a perfect leader. Number one, he was probably not going to make the greatest leader. He was going to have to allow the Lord to lead him. But what happened where it was God was just setting this situation up for success, for it to happen. You see God knowing all and seeing all. So here are the people of Israel in slavery. And for us, we have experienced spiritual, emotional, and psychological slavery, but most of us have never experienced literal slavery, right? But we are coming from experiences of other types of slavery. We have experienced trauma because of circumstances of life and the wickedness of humanity. We've been left with doubt and with fear. This is the places that God has drawn us from and brought us from. And for some of us, it's sometimes easy to slip back into these things, to slip back into this slavery. But this is what God has brought us from. Other people, they have committed such great sin that it has left them overwhelmed with guilt and self-condemnation. Have you ever been a slave to your guilt or a slave to the shame because you know what you've done is not pleasing to the Lord? But here is the thing, that no matter the size or the cause of the spiritual bondage that we might feel we are in or we know somebody is in, God can deliver us, right? And there are testimonies in this room of God's miraculous deliverance of a wide variety of situations, And so the same God who delivered the Israelites and who delivered our elders and leaders and people in this room can deliver each one of us no matter the circumstance. 
So this is where I find very interesting. This Bible study kind of takes a turn into what we've been talking about. Um, I don't know if you remember, but the last couple of weeks I've made mention several times about how knowing the Old Testament so enriches the New Testament. And this particular story of Moses and the children of Israel is a great example of that. And we're going to get to draw some parallels and really see what that looks like. And I'm excited about that. So after Moses is protected in the river as a baby, he grows up and he flees the household of Pharaoh because he killed an Egyptian. And so Moses is living in a place called Midian, and that is where he receives his formal calling to go back and deliver the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt. So he's called out. He, you can see the story of Moses is, is uh, made up in, years, in 40 years. So the first 40 years of his life... He is um, in Egypt. Then the next 40 years of his life, he is in Midian. Then the next 40 years of his life, he is as a, serving as a deliverer to the children of Israel. He's serving the Lord in that leadership role. So it's kind of easy to follow his life in that way. You know, I'm going to be 40 next year. And, you know, the way I see it is Moses really, you know, I mean, he didn't really do much for the Lord until he turned 80. Right? If I'm doing Right? That's kind of wild. <laughs> I want to be like, okay, we could do this. <laughs> I won't wait till 80. <laughs> so let's hope the Lord's back before then. <laughs> so here he is, and he is called to return back to Egypt where the miraculous work of God would deliver the Hebrews from their bondage through the supernatural plagues, the 10 plagues that we know from Sunday school. And so after the Hebrews were delivered, God gives them the law. And this is a series of commandments that they would follow, right? And this was not just because God wanted to have control over them. Okay, the law was given to keep the Israelites in a healthy relationship with God and prevent them from falling back into slavery ever again. And so while giving them these commandments, the Lord gave them a prophecy as well of another deliverer like Moses. Okay, and this is where I just feel the Bible is so rich. And so we see this. We see Moses, their deliverer. But here's the truth. Moses was a type of the Messiah. He was a model for us to look at of Jesus Christ, a model of the real thing. So when we look at the life of Moses, Moses' life is pointing to Jesus Christ. Okay? It's just there's more to come. And so we see that he is used by God to deliver the Hebrews, and God knew in his divine foreknowledge that this was not the last time that the Israelites would, be, would need to be delivered. God, existing outside of space and time, understood that they would continue to sin, that they would turn to false gods, that they would fall into slavery again. And Moses was just showing us and pointing us to the real ultimate deliverer who would deliver all people for all time. And this, of course, was Jesus Christ. Okay? So Moses, in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19, he was giving the law to the Israelites, and he says this. 
In verse 15, he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb in the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore, or we will die. The Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in my in his mouth, he will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words and that the prophet speaks in my name. So there was a foretelling even to Moses, there's it greater than you coming. It's, there's more. This is not the end. And they've asked for a good thing. So we see in Acts chapter 3 that Peter preached a sermon confirming that Jesus Christ was indeed the prophet foretold in Deuteronomy. So we're talking hundreds of years before Moses is telling them that Jesus would come. Now, they don't really understand, but he's telling them that there's going to be somebody coming. Okay? So he's telling them that they would. So everybody in Acts chapter 3, the people that are listening know the law of Moses, know what Moses says. And Peter, having been filled with the Holy Ghost, confirms to those people that that's who Jesus Christ is. Do you see how rich that is? Like that all the way back, there it is. Well, I mean from the very beginning. Oh, it's slain from the foundation of the world. That's what John, John said, this is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world, talking about Jesus Christ, that there was always a plan that deliverance would not just be this temporary event, okay? So the deliverance that Jesus offered through his death on the cross was greater than anything Moses ever did. And this is why we don't look to the law of Moses for salvation. Praise the Lord. Jesus offered a more complete salvation, and therefore we are no longer bound by the law. The, the writer of John's gospel phrased it like this, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And that's John 1.17. So the law was not sufficient to keep us out of slavery like the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. See, the law was truth and consequences. And if you've heard me talk a little bit about the law, I mean, you're talking about ways to clean and cut your fingernails. Like, it's that detailed. <laughs> okay? So the law was truth and consequences. But now truth and grace is what we are offered. And grace is getting something that we don't deserve. Not like the way we said it when we were kids. No, I don't deserve that. You know, talking about, no, the other way. I don't deserve that. You're giving me this awesome gift. I don't deserve that. And that is everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we deserve slavery. God has given us an opportunity, though, to receive freedom. Truth refers to reality and to fact. And we can only experience ultimate truth in Jesus Christ. Biblically, truth is not an untouchable con concept, but the person of Jesus. Truth is not relative. Like, it's not about w what your opinion is. It's not about what room you're in or the people that you're with. It's concrete. And so we have the person of Jesus. 
And this is what um, John 14, 6 tells us, that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So I'm going to get off a little bit again, and I don't, lately I've been doing this as far as talking about the armor of the Lord, so maybe somebody needs to hear it. But when I put on the belt of truth, the Bible says we should gird ourselves up with the belt of truth. That's kind of like surrounding us, okay? Um, think of it as a harness, Okay, you are harnessing yourself up with truth. Now, if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, which we just read that he is, then when I put on the belt of truth, I am harnessing myself in Jesus, which means I don't have to carry the weight of myself because I'm harnessed in Jesus. So that is the armor of the Lord based, according to Mandy. So... But I think about that fact that he is truth, and that means I don't have to lean on anything else. I don't have to be carried by anything else. He's the truth. And that's an issue in our world today because nobody, everything is based on what your opinion is. Everything is based on what makes you feel comfortable. You go out in the world, it's like, well, that's fine for you, but this is how I'm going to do it. No. That cannot be our opinion, because if our opinion is that's fine for you, then they stay in slavery while we're over in truth and liberty. So we have to be confident that Jesus Christ is truth in order to live in and share liberation, okay? It's very important. So... John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and also verse 14, I want to read because they're so important. But it says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shined to darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the word was God. What is that talking about? Well, if you skip down to verse 14, it says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of, and here's these two words again, grace and truth. It's talking about Jesus, okay? The way, the truth, and the life, the way that we find him, he's the word. He's not just in it, he is it. It's, 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 it's just mind-blowing. I know. It's mind-blowing. So I will choose those last two words, grace and truth. Both the truth and grace that Jesus Christ offers are available to us. And the problem is not the availability of grace and truth. The problem is that I need to be willing to accept what Jesus is freely offering. And this is what that t this lesson comes down to. And they leave us with a little parable that says... In the familiar fable of a frog who sits passively while water gradually heats to a boil, the frog always has an opportunity to jump out. However, a frog that is comfortable where it is might not choose that freedom, and instead, it slowly boils to death. The frog is only one choice away from life, freedom, and salvation. But it grows comfortable even in what causes its death. 
And similarly, we are just a choice away from salvation. We can choose today to receive grace and truth that Christ is offering. We can repent of our sins. We can submit to baptism in the name of Jesus. And we can receive the gift of the Holy Ghost with the sign of speaking in other tongues. And by choosing salvation, we are choosing to receive the unearned favor and blessing of the Lord, grace, and to live an overcoming life in the higher reality that God desires for us, truth. And this is where that message Wednesday just resonates with me. It's because we make so complicated what is uncomplicated. We can choose to walk in the freedom of the Lord, not our freedom. And that was that first phrase in this lesson said it, that God overcomes those, those things that would be put in front of us to trip us up. And that is walking in the way of the Lord. That's why daily we do these things. That's why daily we practice the vitals. We read, we read the truth. That's why daily we spend time in the presence of God. That we let him carry us. We, we allow ourselves to be harnessed in him. Because he's already overcome those things. It is about our will saying, I will do this. And again, he already preached it. So listen to Wednesday's message. <laughs> so here we have this old covenant versus the new covenant or the Old Testament versus the New Testament. How are they related? How is it that this story of the Israelites being delivered from Egypt can be so rich in my life? How, when I read their testimony, can it become my testimony? Sometimes as Christians, we speak of experiences in the Old Testament versus the New Testament, and we speak as though they're two separate things or as though it's one against the other. Or, or you know, look at those stories of the conquests and the Goliaths that are killed and these things that are done, and nowadays we're, you know, we're in this, and it's just this versus this. Both were established by God and were appropriate for the time when they were given. However, the Old Testament, covenant, the Old Testament was never intended to be permanent. It was not a permanent answer. Paul wrote in Galatians 3.24, and I'm going to read it in the message. He said, until the time when we were mature enough to respond freely in faith to the living God, we were carefully surrounded and protected by the law of Moses. The law was like those Greek teachers tutors with which you were familiar who escorted children to school and protected them from danger or distraction making sure the children will really get to the place they set out for he said they couldn't handle the truth <laughs> and so he protected them with the law now i am thankful to live in the new testament time so when Christ died and rose again, he establishes the new covenant that we live in today. Under the old covenant, many sacrifices had to be made for all different kinds of problems. There was the burnt offering. And this was an offering of ascent. It literally means ca called the burnt offering. And the purpose of the burnt offering was for general atonement of sin and an expression of devotion of God. 
And the instructions for the burnt offering are given in Leviticus 1, 3 through 17. It had to be a sheep or a goat, a bull, a dove, or a pigeon. The animal was to be burnt whole overnight. And though its skin was to be given to the priest, and the burnt offering was the earliest type of compensation for sin that we see in the Old Testament. Okay? There are five more of these. There's also the grain offering. And this is just five of them that that I've kind of lined. The grain offering talking about um, uh, an expression of devotion to God and recognizing his goodness and providence, and it had just as many specifications as the last one. There was the peace offering. And this is um, discussed in Leviticus 3, and it includes thanksgiving offering, free will offering, wave offering. It could be a cattle, a sheep, or a goat. It could include a variety of breads. Oh. There was a reason for it. It was like a contract. Very complicated. Like, I would have never gotten any of this right. Like, <laughs> I would have been like, which one am I supposed to do now? <laughs> and does anybody feel that when you read Leviticus? You're like, oh. So then you had the sin offering. And it is the offering for um, atonement of unintentional sin. I would have just done that one all the time. <laughs> Lord, I'm not sure if I've done anything wrong, but if I have, you know. (laughs) So then you have the guilt offering. And it is, um, the purpose of this offering is to make reimbursement for one sin. Okay? And this offering had a specific monetary value. There's a lot, okay? But we don't live there. This sacrificial system of the Old Testament was a means of grace by which relationship between God and humanity begins to be restored. There is a beginning of restoration, okay, as in a beginning of going back to when Adam and Eve were walking with the Lord. It's the beginning of that. But it was inadequate, and none could repay this debt of life that was owed until Christ defeated death once and for all. And so under this new covenant, Christ sacrificed himself, and it is once and for all. We see Hebrews 10.10. And his singular, his one and only sacrifice, it was enough to cover all sins for all time. And we still live under that new covenant and the effects of Jesus' eternally atoning sacrifice. And this new covenant, it accomplished what could only be symbolized in the Old Testament. It was just pointing to what was to come. It was the Old Testament. It was never the end goal, but it was just a shadow of what was going to happen. Of the good things that would come. So now we have access to repenting to baptism in the name of Jesus, to being filled with his spirit, which gives us that power and that ability and that leaning towards doing and stepping into what God has for us and that liberty that God has for us. And so when we try to live in a way where we are tallying up the things instead of just leaning into God for his grace and his truth, and we're trying to tally, I haven't really been that bad. But now I'm going to go to church. You know, I'm going to even this out by praying for 10 minutes today. Then we're walking back into that place of slavery. We're walking back into that place that, like the Old Testament law, 
puts a veil over our heart. That's what Paul said. It drapes a veil over our hearts. We, we can't see clearly. We don't, we don't know clearly and understand clearly the grace and the truth of God. 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17 says, Sincere people turn their hearts over to the Lord. The veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And when we receive the Holy Spirit that was poured out on the day of Pentecost, we can experience the full liberty that Christ desires for us. I want to end um, just with a, another, I guess, little illustration. And it's not the same one that maybe they wrote for us in the study, but I was reminded in reading our Bible study today about a dog that we used to have when I was a kid. And her name was Maggie. She was a boxer. And she was my mom's dog more than anything. Um, she was this poor dog. She was a beautiful dog. But she lived her life tied to the door. She was tied to the back door of our house because my mom didn't want her outside where she'd stink, but she also didn't want her walking around inside wherever she wanted. And so she leashed her to the door. I mean, the leash was probably like this long. <laughs> and so she lived that way, leashed to the door for years. I mean, years. And I will never forget coming home from church one day and her leash had come loose. And we were like, oh, her leash is loose. I wonder what she's destroyed because she, she wasn't used to being loose. I wonder what she's done. You know, and she's sitting then on her pillow by the door just looking at us, waiting to come in. And we're like, oh, no. So we did a really quick run around in the house. And we realized she had not touched anything. And then we realized that she did not know she could move. Her leash had come loose from the door. But she had been stuck in that little six-foot, probably less than that. I'll give a little credit to my mom. But little six-foot circle her whole life that we had had her that she didn't know that she could go any farther than that. And that's us sometimes. Right? There are th and, and especially us who have access to the presence of the Lord and we have the knowledge and the availability to step in the deliverance that God wants to offer us and we come into a place like this and we accept at an altar that we have been freed and all of a sudden the leash is gone and yet we don't move into the freedom that is available to us because that's really about us taking that step right? That's about me saying, I will step into the freedom that God has for me. And sometimes that means saying yes to the Lord, and sometimes that means saying no to the enemy, okay? And so God can give us the discernment to know when those times are. God can give us the spiritual wherewithal to say, okay, I'm going to listen to the voice of God and God is now speaking to me to move or he's speaking to me to stay or he's telling me yes or he's telling me no and I'm going to do what it is that he's telling me to do. And we have the ability to have that liberty, to have that deliverance and it is available for us today and I am very thankful for that. We're going to continue to talk about how God is a deliverer um, 
And I just, I just pray that through these words, though very studious, we will receive that deliverance. We will receive that grace and truth. Let's pray. God, I thank you for these people. I thank you, Lord, for how they listen to your word and how they are involved and they are paying attention. And I pray, God, that your hand would be upon them. I pray that throughout this week, though the enemy would come in looking for a place and a time to devour them, that they would see your way of escape, God, that you have already overcome the trap of the enemy and they just need to step into that place. And I thank you for it, that you are a deliverer, just like you were in the Old Testament. Now for us today, in just as miraculous a way, you deliver us. And I thank you for that, God. You are so good to us and prepare us for what you want to do in this next service. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.